0: You're listening to RTE Lyric Live. In his best-known portrait, painted in 1906, Serge Diaghilev looks at us side-on, hands in the pockets of a pair of voluminous trousers, a watch chain hanging from the pocket of a grey waistcoat. The setting is possibly the living room of a St Petersburg apartment, and sitting at the rear is Diaghilev's nanny, who had reared him from childhood and who even decades on, as a grown man, Diaghilev kept close by him, that was the Russian way. It's a memorable image, and in a way an unusual one, for although it places Diaghilev at the centre of the tableau, in the normal run of things, he himself was rarely in the limelight, despite the fact that he was one of the key creative figures of the early 20th century, and the legendary Ballet Russe was his artistic vision. What Diaghilev did was to draw some of the greatest artists of the day to him, be they set designers, choreographers, dancers, composers like Igor Stravinsky, and let them stun the public and take the applause. Diaghilev, then in his mid-thirties, had been living in St Petersburg ever since his student days. Eight years before, he'd co-founded World of Art, which is both a journal and an artistic movement. Its members included Alexandre Benoit and Léon Baxt, two artists who also doubled up as set and costume designers for the Imperial Theatres. Diaghilev was to co-opt them into his new venture, which involved taking some of the finest examples of Russian stagecraft to Paris. Not only was Paris one of the key cultural capitals of Western Europe, it was far away from their native Russia, where, as everybody knew, the political situation was becoming more and more unstable. Right from the get-go, it was clear that this was to be no normal theatrical undertaking. Diaghilev was demanding, and his ambition was sky-high. As he used to say, there is no interest in achieving the possible, but it is exceedingly interesting to perform the impossible. His very first opera production outside Russia was of Mezorgsky's spectacular Boris Godunov, which he brought to Paris in 1908. Diaghilev wrote to a French journalist promising that there would be 200 incredibly sumptuous costumes, silks woven with gold and embroidered with pearls. Don't think I'm joking. And he wasn't. The following year, Diaghilev brought in the dazzling young Igor Stravinsky, who made a stunning impression with a succession of brilliantly forward-looking scores. Most of all, the infamous Le Sac du Printemps, The Rite of Spring. The story of a Russian virgin being sacrificed to propitiate the God of Spring was perhaps never going to be an easy-going spectacle. In the hands of an inspired production team, including two brilliant artists, choreographer Václav Nijinsky and composer Stravinsky, it was stunning and shocking. And just too much for many bejeweled members of the audience to endure at that Parisian first night on the 13th of May, 1913. The artist Valentine Grosse was one of those there to experience it. She knew that the new ballet was going to be unconventional, but said, I was expecting neither such a great work of art or such a scandal. The theatre seemed to be shaken by an earthquake. People hissed, howled and shouted insults and jokes, incensing those who actually wanted to see and hear the ballet. Since much of the music became inaudible, it was a mystery how the dancers managed to stay together. So what did Diaghilev think of this scandalous evening? Jean Cocteau reported that Diaghilev was distraught, reportedly weeping and reciting Pushkin to compose himself. But in fact, Diaghilev did nothing of the kind. He just went out to a restaurant. According to Stravinsky, All Diaghilev said was that the outrage reception in the theatre was exactly what I wanted. Diaghilev knew how valuable a scandal could be. Music like that just hits you between the ears, doesn't it? And if there's one work that sums up the shock factor of the Ballet Russe, it's that Rite of Spring score by Stravinsky. But the visual aspect of the productions was every bit as important, and it's a sign of the clout that Diaghilev had that he was able to get the very greatest artists of the day to work with him. Henri Matisse was one. After getting knocked back at first several times, Diaghilev and Stravinsky managed to charm and then cajole Matisse into working on a new opera of Stravinsky's, The Song of the Nightingale. Matisse, resistant at first, was bitten by the bug and eventually couldn't resist. When Diaghilev summoned him across the Channel to London in October 1919, he went, only to find that he was being asked to oversee all of the costumes and sets being made right there, to his horror. But he couldn't say no. As Matisse said, Diaghilev is Louis XIV. You've no idea what he's like. He's charming and maddening at the same time. He's a real snake. He slips through your fingers. Picasso, Matisse's big rival in the art world, didn't fare much better. He was brought in to work on Pulcinella, a fascinating ballet by Stravinsky that takes antique 18th-century Italian melodies and re-sprays them, as it were, with up-to-date harmonic colours from 1919. Picasso thought this would work well with a sort of music hall mise-en-scene, with on-stage characters in opera boxes looking out at the real spectators in the audience. But Diaghilev furiously disagreed he angrily threw the drawings of the floor and stamped on them before storming out of the room and slamming the door picasso was deeply offended and it took an awful lot of apologizing the next day to patch that one up and in terms of homegrown russian design talent there was the husband and wife pairing of mikhail laryonov and natalia goncharova together they founded what's been called the neo primitive school of russian art in other words, a style that combined elements of traditional folk design with a rigorous kind of abstract modernism. Goncharova was asked to design the set and costumes for Les Nos, a tangy Stravinsky score about a peasant wedding in a Russian village. A sort of partner piece to the Rite of Spring, you might think. And the two works were conceived around the same time. But this one is very different. Les Nos took a decade to put together and by the time it saw the light of day in 1922, Stravinsky had left the musical language of the right far behind him. Now he wanted to portray the village ritual in abstract terms, and that's something that Goncharova reflected in her designs. They're monochrome and cool, as befits a ballet which the dance historian Nancy van Norman Baer has described as a primitive ritual where both bride and groom are trapped by fate, and repressive social custom. A peasant celebration, this ain't. Renard, or the fox of the previous year, is something else again, a burlesque featuring four singers embedded within the orchestra. It's based on a series of Russian folk tales, and for it, Goncharova's husband Larionov came up with futurist style costumes, making the dancers wear heavy shapes on their bodies, geometric makeup, and towering headdresses. Stravinsky loved the first production of the piece in 1922, but couldn't bear its revival in 1929. Diaghilev ruined the whole thing for him by including some jugglers he'd booked from a nearby circus. The great impresario had clearly overstepped the mark on this occasion. Yeah, i А что тут a fool, but Законты на низяшее, С низяше Я твою душу на небеса Не скоронься, лисенька! Кому скоронно, а нам здоровье! What is a The detachment that you can hear in that score is a great example of Stravinsky at his neoclassical best, creating a style that's clear and bright, rather than shocking or expressive. This was an era in which feelings were meant to be very much kept at arm's length. Besides, objectivity did have its advantages. It meant that a story could be told without emotions getting in the way. When Stravinsky came to create his own version of Oedipus Rex, he chose to set it in Latin rather than up-to-date French. As he put it, Latin wasn't a dead language, but one that's been turned to stone, and so monumentalized as to have become immune from all risk of vulgarisation. He'd been to see a version of Antigone by Sophocles that his friend Jean Cocteau had put on at the Atelier in Paris, and asked Cocteau to come up with a text for his Oedipus Rex, not one that told the story as such, but what Stravinsky called a still life of it. Once they'd settled on a final libretto, with Stravinsky very much calling the shots there, then off it went to be translated into Latin. The staging, when it came, was very contained, with a minimum of action. Stravinsky wanted the chorus to sing with their heads covered with monastic cowls, with all but three of the main singers wearing masks. His idea was that they should look like living statues, not, then, the most exuberant of operas, or the most uplifting of presents. For that's what Stravinsky intended it to be, a musical tribute to say thank you to Serge Diaghilev on the 20th anniversary of the Belarus. After the first performance on the 30th of May 1927, Diaghilev was rather underwhelmed by the piece, saying that it was a rather macabre sort of present. And you can see what he means the story of a man who gradually comes to realise that he has unwittingly committed a series of terrible crimes. It's all not exactly party fare. What's undeniable, though, is that there's a real haunting beauty about the music. Diaghilev recognised this when he heard an early playthrough of Stravinsky's score and raved about it in terms that are almost religious. It is an amazing work, he said. Extraordinarily calm and with greater clarity than anything he has so far done, with filigree counterpoint around transparent and clear cut themes, all in the major key. moderato per di You're listening to RTE Lyric Live.